This is The Common Denominator, and I'm Ilana Rachel Daniel. Welcome back to The Common Denominator. We meet you today in a world that keeps upping the ante. We awake each morning to read the news and become freshly appalled and alarmed at what unexpected twist we've turned. We're flooded online with a dialogue at a decibel so unhinged you can't pull yourself away from the train wreck of it, never mind succeed in bringing any nuance to the conversation. But this vitriol comes with real-life consequences and the emboldened action to plan and do harm. One of the fundamental reasons we initiated the common denominator is out of the need, the very long need, to bring the perspective of the Israeli people to the discussion. The real live people of flesh, who for all the incessant talking about us, few have ever heard from us about us, or our experiences and perspectives in the mainstream dialogue. In my personal experience, I found people across the world were highly curious to hear from Israelis on any criticisms of our government, of which we have not a few. These criticisms are taken immediately and at face value. However, when we wish to explain what is entirely unique to our people and place, it's often dismissed as propaganda. The lack of curiosity to learn the truth in lieu of lopsided, villainous, all-bad entity has brought us to the brink today. It's my belief that an entirely different language is required to tell our tale. For the language presently utilized by the masses leaves the lived and historical experience of the Jews and Israel out of the story, and it implies inherent guilt and wrongdoing. It's my belief that the world has very little understanding of the Jewish experience, of who we are, what's unique to our nation, and how that guides us. The world requires, and rather urgently, an understanding of the myriad presentations of the Jews and the Israeli state. The word Israel alone has any number of meanings. What I see repeatedly on social media are Jews who are utterly baffled by what's said of us, so contrary is it to the source of our intentions. That leaves a gaping hole of the entire other side of the story, so to speak, without which not one of us can arrive at a place of coherence. It's the common denominator's objective to identify and describe Israel in its many manifestations of state and peoplehood and faith. In order to do so, we need to teach a new language. The rancor we see now on display is not criticism of Israel and its response to the atrocities of October 7th. We see a delegitimizing and dehumanizing of the state of Israel, accusations that Israel is an imperialist, colonialist, genocidal country, and that did not begin on October 8th. These are deliberate, specific, and targeted attacks developed decades ago to mask anti-Semitism in the cloak of criticism of Zionism. It's with this that we could not be more delighted to welcome scholar of anti-Zionism and contemporary left anti-Semitism and contributing writer to Tablet Magazine, Isabella Tabarovsky. Isabella, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me, Ilana. It's a pleasure. Um, so diving right in, we're talking about establishing definitions. We hear the vitriol spat out in the word Zionism. It's become a dirty word. So let's start perhaps with your definition of what this word Zionism means. 
So first of all, I want to comment on your introduction. I think it's so, so spot on because as a scholar of anti-Zionist propaganda, it's very clear to me that what we're hearing today is, is re- it's a language, uh, it, it doesn't define Zionism, just as you said. It's language that has been contaminated and distorted by state agents, by, by state actors that used propaganda, anti-Semitic propaganda, to achieve their uh, specific political agendas, you know, for foreign policy purposes, even domestic policy purposes. So it's the manipulation of the language to achieve political purposes. So Zionism, to me, is very simply uh, the right of the Jewish people to self-determination in our uh, land, in the land of Israel. So it's, it's a pretty simple and straightforward definition. But look at what we are hearing today online and wherever, you know, outside on campuses, in the streets of American and European cities, that Zionism is racism, Zionism is settler colonialism, Zionism is fascism, Zionism is Nazism, and then there's a whole series of, um, of you know, epithets applied to Israel, that it's an apartheid state, that it's a Nazi, it's, that it's like Nazi Germany. So all of this is a redefinition. And at this point, it has become so deeply inculcated that it's very hard to convince people who are already convinced that this is what it is. And so then the question that then arises for me is, who is our target audience here, really? Do we want to try to convince those who are already convinced to change their minds? Or do we just work with those who don't yet know or are not yet convinced? Because I think that the... You know, some people think that what we're hearing today is something new. You often hear people talk about new, it's a new anti-Semitism or it's something, it's a new form of anti-Jewish hate. But the thing is, there's nothing new about it. And that is the problem. You know, I grew up in the Soviet Union and I lived in the U.S. for 30 years. But in the USSR of the 70s and 80s, this was the language that you heard. This is where it comes from. That's the source and so there's nothing new about it. And as Jews, as former Soviet Jews, we know what terrible consequences this language has. You know, and this is why I've been writing about it and I've been warning American Jews about it. And it was very hard for them, I think, to believe that this anti-Zionist, anti-Israel language is as dangerous as, for example, the language of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. But they're, a deep, they're deeply intertwined and we can get into that in the conversation if you want to. Uh, but this is really what's where my my thoughts are right now. I completely agree with the definition, the self-determination in our land. To me, as really feeling like kind of a simple Jew, it's baffling to me the the um, villainization of the word Zionism because it seems a really very simple desire that every people has. No matter where you move to, you have the memories of your land, of your food, of the trees that you, you know, that you climbed. And so it seems to me an entirely basic and very sort of fundamental human experience. Isabella, tell us first, what was it like being a Jew in the former Soviet Union? Well, look, it's a it's a complex story, you know, because uh, in the seven, it, it, it differed depending on when you lived there. So I was born in 1970, so I came of age like in the 70s and 80s, and basically, as the Soviet Union was fall, falling apart, we left, we emigrated to the U.S. 
at that time, it wasn't as dangerous to be a Jew as, for example, it was during cer- certain periods of time under Stalin, for example, in the late 40s and early 50s, when there were massive anti-Semitic campaigns. But what happened by the 70s and 80s is that Jews were supposed to have become assimilated. They basically had already killed all of the Jewish culture and Jewish uh, and religion and tradition. And so growing up Jewish in the USSR at that time, you didn't really even know what it meant. It depended a little bit on where you grew up. Like if you were growing up in certain parts of Ukraine or the Baltic Republics, the Baltic Republics especially, which became part of the USSR later, so they weren't so Sovietized, not as as much as some other parts of the country. But where I was growing up, uh, we were, on the one hand, entirely assimilated. We didn't know any, we didn't know Yiddish or Hebrew. There was no way really to learn it legally. Uh, No synagogues. I grew up in Novosibirsk. Um, No knowledge about Israel, no Jewish history taught, you know, no Jewish culture. And yet you always knew that you were Jewish. And that was kind of the paradox of the Soviet Jewish identity. You know, they identified you, when I first came to the U.S., it was hard for me to explain to American Jews, how is it that people identified you as a Jew? And I would say, well, they would do it by looking at my face. And they would look at me and they would say, well, what do you mean? Like, if I look at you, how does a Jew look? And that's a real sort of cultural divide because in uh, in the USSR, basically, uh, it was a country that was very focused on people's ethnicities for historical reasons. And I think that the first thought that people have when they look at you or looked at you was, well, what is your nationality? And for a person with my look, you know, kind of a stereotypical Jewish nose, you know, kind of Mediterranean features, I guess you could say, um, I could be nothing but Jewish. And so that, and then of course, also they recorded your your Jewishness in your passport, in your internal passport. Everybody's nationality or ethnic identity was recorded that way. But if you were a Jew uh, and it was written on your face and it was written in your ID, then certain opportunities were closed. And you were always conscious of that. You always realized that you understood it. You were subjected to taunting in the streets. Um, And what's important is that these are the years when the Soviet anti-Zionist campaign hits a high gear, you know, and it's this international campaign that demonizes Zionism, precisely the terms that you were talking about in your introduction. And this is what's so interesting about the Soviet Jewish experience in those years that I think a lot of people don't understand is that the state-sponsored anti-Semitism that was uh, part of our lives was expressed in anti-Zionist terms. It was expressed in anti-Israel terms. And so, which is how we know as Soviet Jews, we all know that once this language appears, Jews will be demonized along with Zionism and Israel. And nobody will care what your opinion is on Israel or Zionism. Everybody will be demonized. Your your, um, opportunities will be limited and it can be they can be limited different ways but right now for example what's happening to american jews it's very similar to what happened to soviet jews so there are limitations in the academy there are limitations in professional fields um you you know we see more we see jews being expelled maybe not in the u.s yet but in other countries being expelled if they express support for israel so being uh, expelled from sports teams So very similar consequences. And so what happened then is that in the end, 
you couldn't always emigrate from the USSR. The, the exits were closed for a big part of the time. But once the exits opened, basically all Soviet Jews left, the vast majority of Soviet Jews left. And that is really the biggest indication of what anti-Zionism does to Jewish life. Which is the perfect example, which is that no one had any illusions. None of the Jews living in Soviet Russia had any illusions about the semantics. They were perfectly aware that whatever you want to call it, it was plain old and simple anti-Jew hate. Um, Isabella, the, the, the bulk of your work talks about one of the things that struck me so much was this idea of Russia's role in 1967 proxy war and their development, their um, inheritance, as it were, even though they're now defunct, but the, the long lives on their legacy of anti-Semitism on U.S. campuses. Please speak to that. I'd, I'd love to hear. Sure. Well, and first of all, I want to say, you know, people often say just the other day, somebody said to me on uh, on X on Twitter, well, sure, the USSR no longer exists and you keep blaming them for all of the ills. And I say, well, sure, Nazi Germany doesn't exist either, but Nazi, the Nazi ideology very much exists and prospers. We understand that when we speak about Nazi ideology. Well, it's the same with the, you know, right, call it Soviet or communist ideology. Uh, you know, communist ideology was always hostile to Zionism, and there were many reasons for that. Even if you, if you look even at the early writings by Lenin and Stalin, you, you see a hostility to Zionism, and it's both theoretical and practical, and I'm not going to get into it in details, but on a very basic level, Zionism is nationalism and communism is internationalism. And so one of the arguments they put up was that, well, you know, we are only free, each of us is free is only when everybody's free, which is basically today's slogan as well. It comes as part of intersectionality today, but back then... It came as part of uh, kind of the general Marxist um, understanding proletarians of all countries unite. Uh, but anyway, but so it, it, the opposition, the Soviet communist opposition to Zionism evolved over the years and it became progressively more conspiracist. And this is what's really important. So when they opposed Zionism in the 1920s, you know, you can disagree with them. You, If you don't buy into Marxist, the Marxist perspective and on the world, then you disagree with them. That's fine. There is logic to it. It's not conspiracist. You know, they sort of view Zionism as it is still. But then as you progress through the 30s and 40s Stalin's period, it becomes progressively more conspiracist. And then you get to 1967. And what happens in 1967 is that Israel, of course, wins in this war against Arab states, which were financed and trained by, uh, by, by the Soviets. And the Soviets don't understand how is it that such a small country like Israel could win over these much more powerful Arab states, much more numerous, and trained and financed by them. And from there, a conspiracy theory is born, and it literally was conspiracists. The KGB really believed that there was a Zionist conspiracy against the Soviet Union. And who was part of this conspiracy? The United States, of course, was the biggest part of this conspiracy. And Zionists owned and controlled the United States. They controlled American media and American politicians and American finances. And at the same, at the same time, Zionists were sort of the tool of imperialism in the Middle East. And so who the uh, USSR faced in the Middle East in reality was not just tiny Israel, 
but the mighty United States. Now, it has to be said that in 67, the United States did not support Israel, but the Soviets believed that it was a full-blown conspiracy theory. And so at that point, this is when they really begin to redefine Zionism officially, and they begin a full-blown propaganda campaign, which goes internationally. So again, this is this is the significance of 67. So before they were anti-Zionist, and under Stalin, even there were conspiracist notes, but it mostly remained internal, you know, or some of it kind of spilled over into Eastern, Eastern European states. But in 67, it goes global, and they begin to target really the entire world, because they believe that Zionists own the entire world, so they need to confront Zionists all around the world. And so they sponsored something like 75 to 80 various leftist groups, communist parties, workers' parties around the globe, literally gave them money uh, so that they could publish the same things that the Soviets published. As part of their broader propaganda campaign, they would also publish articles demonizing Zionism. Their work, the KGB, um, carried out what's known as, as active measures, which is uh, sort of actions that are meant to, you know, to kind of manipulate reality in a way that would uh, fit the needs of the KGB and the, of the United States. So, for example, uh, one well-known active measure that they undertook was they forged letters, uh, claimed that these letters were written by Zionist leaders and sent them to various leaders of the black community. And these were really deeply racist letters. These were forgeries. But what this meant, what this was meant to do was to show, to undermine the relationship between Jews and and African-Americans, and to show, to confirm the Soviet point that Zionists were racist. So there were numerous active measures like this that they undertook. Um, and this is this is really where it, uh, it begins. Tell me more, Isabella, about what happened on U.S. campuses. And do you think it's the same story up until this moment? Or is has it changed? Or are we just running straight through for... 50 years? Well, look, my assumption is that when you look, because I've looked at a lot of, I've looked not only at the Soviet press from that time, but I've also been looking at what were um, the various communist publications, leftist publications publishing at that time abroad. And I'm most only looking at English. It's, it's really important to understand that the Soviets were directing this propaganda in like dozens of languages, you know, to dozens of countries. I'm only looking at English. So you can see the same ideas circulating. And so my theory, which I believe to be correct, is that in the 70s and 80s, these, these ideas about Zionism begin to penetrate the progressive left-wing circles. And I think that at the time, you know, this is the Cold War, the far left is really on the fringes, the, nobody likes the communists, right? So they're kind of in their own world, they're on the fringes. But it becomes a really um, an inseparable part of the package of causes that you assume if you join the left. What is the cause? The cause is that as a leftist, you are against Zionism. You view Israel as a reactionary state that is simultaneously like apartheid South, Afri South Africa and Nazi Germany. So you And you assume the pro-Palestinian stance. Pro-Palestinian, I always... You know, I think it's a misnomer. It's one of the things, one of the many misnomers in the language that we're using that needs to be corrected because 
I, I don't think that what these groups are proposing actually helps Palestinians. Um, I think certainly right now, what they're proposing would help Hamas and not the actual people on the ground. But for for the purposes of our discussion, so you assume that whatever passes for pro-Palestinian cause. And so somehow this continues, this, this remains, so the Soviet Union falls apart, but this remains part of the left-wing discourse and part of the left-wing attitude. Uh, and it's interesting because even though there are some splits that occur in the 70s and 80s and some left-wing groups position themselves as being anti-Soviet. But when you look at their publications, even though they're generally anti-Soviet, when it comes to Israel and Zionism, they speak in the very same language that the Soviets invented, essentially. And so then somehow, how it then re-emerges on American campuses more recently, that's, I think that that requires more study. But I do know, I do know that when I look at what's circulating on the internet today, I see a lot of those old Soviet materials, literal Soviet materials. Again, I see them in English. I'm sure they appear in lots of other languages as well. They are just being recirculated. And nobody knows anymore that they originate with the USSR. So, for example, I saw one publication uh, which has the same name as a publication that the Communist Party of the United States used to put out which was sponsored by the Soviets financially. Now I don't know who sponsors them, but they republished a a book that was produced, kind of they serialized it into three articles, that was produced, literally, we know it from declassified materials. It was produced with Soviet help. We know that the author of the book traveled to Moscow, specifically requesting help in producing this book. He said he wanted to write a book about Zionism and its reactionary nature, and the Soviet comrades say, of course, of course, we'll help you. These are like super senior Soviet comrades, uh, members of the Communist Party, the Central Committee. So now this book appears on this website. The children don't know. Whoever, whoever is reading this don't know how it was produced. They don't know that they're literally reading the KGB propaganda. So this stuff is circulating. It's out there. It's just one example. It's completely out there. And this concept that it was my understanding that the Soviets actually infiltrated U.S. campuses with flyers saying things like the exact same slogans we hear today, Zionism, apartheid, and that an entire academia was really invented at that time in the 70s where professors were paid for by the former Soviet Union until people began to quote each other until an entire academia was created, of which I understand Abu Mazen has an actual PhD in. Is that yeah. is that correct? So there are a couple of things here. So the how it penetrated American campuses, I can't say specifically. I know that American that that uh the Soviets produced little brochures. Sure. I have a ton of these brochures that uh, they produced in English and that they distributed actively abroad. This we know for sure. And I absolutely would not be surprised if brochures like this found their way to American campuses. I know that somebody from South Africa just told me that when he was growing up in South Africa, uh, these uh, Novosti brochures, Novosti was the publisher, the Soviet publisher, they were everywhere on this campus. So uh, so for sure, in student groups, in leftist student groups, I have no doubt that they were there. 
the extent to which they co-opted the professors, I'm sure, again, it was some probably were co-opted. I don't know if uh, it, it, it needs to be more, it needs to be investigated much more because we know that some professors certainly traveled to the USSR and we know that whenever you went to the USSR, you were always, um, if you were of interest to the authorities, they would show you a Potomkin village, you know, kind of a made made up front facade and then try to recruit you to be on their side. So that was there. You know, if you look, for example, at Angela Davis, I mean, here's an example. Angela Davis was completely part of that Soviet uh, system. You know, she was part of the CPUSA, Communist Party of the uh, United States of America, which was financed by the Soviet Union. So she was a beneficiary of that system. And she, of course, is a professor. I don't know how long she's been a professor, but she teaches on American campuses. And she still holds the same beliefs. She still holds the same anti-Zionist beliefs that she held in the 1970s. The USSR invested a lot into her image, into promoting her, into turning her into the into the spokesperson for uh, for the causes that the Soviets wanted to be for her to be speaking and addressing uh, and expressing. So, uh, but what what with Abu Mazen? That's a, that's related, but that's about the Soviet Academy. The Soviet propagandists drew the Soviet Academy into uh, into the its anti-Zionist into their anti-Zionist campaign because they realized that they needed to give it heft. And they wanted to sound scholarly. They wanted to sound like there was some scientific objective reality to what they were saying about Zionism, that it wasn't just propaganda. And so they just drew in, you know, this is something that I realize that sometimes I forget that a lot of people don't really realize how the USSR worked. It was a state in which everything was subjected to the interests of the center, right? A completely centralized state. And so, and, and the academy was certainly that way. And certainly the social sciences and humanities departments were very much driven by the ideological needs of the state. And so at some point in the early 70s, they begin to establish departments whose task is to create materials that will make it sound like Zionism is in fact racism, as if it's subject, some kind of objective uh, scholarly reality. And when Abu Mazen comes to the USSR to defend his dissertation, which he defended in 82, he lands in one of these institutions. He's actually connected to two institutions. One is the Patrice Lumumba University of Friendship of the Peoples, but he defends his dissertation somewhere else uh, at the Institute of Oriental Studies. And both were part of this network of uh, of, uh, kind of building, creating, and, and reinforcing and enhancing uh, the anti-Zionist uh, echo chamber, and so when you look at the dissertation that he produced, and I've only I've looked at the introduction, basically the summary of the dissertation, because the entire text is is not available; um, it's still classified in the USSR. But the 19 pages that are available, you look at the footnotes, you look at what he's quoting, and it's all of these Soviet propagandists who created this anti-Zionist language. And so then that's where it becomes the echo chamber that you were asking about. You know, then Abu Mazen goes back and he then translates, like communicates all of these ideas to his people in his environment. Uh, And then, and I'm sure that, you know, this is where also another channel of communication happens with the Western leftists who also become close to the Palestinian, to the PLO and then to the Palestinian Authority. So then they hear it from them as well. 
And so it becomes this like this circular quoting. It's like it comes at them from here. It comes at them from there. And they think, well, of course, it's true. Zionism is racism and Israel is an apartheid state. So it's incredible. I think that I've actually often said that that's a silver lining, perhaps, of being a Jew, that you can never kind of go too far maybe not never, but it keeps you from going too far off of any deep ends because you watch in real time them take a thread of fact out of time and context and genuinely weave an entirely different narrative. I have felt so many different things, but certainly my frustration with thinking, why hasn't even the state of Israel done more to 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 confront this? Because at this point, you're talking about a weaving of a of a narrative that is absolutely the the thickest web it feels uh, virtually impossible to approach and that's exactly what we're doing let's pull out thread by thread and 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 put it back in order and put it back in context there's, there's several things that you said I really want to address but the thing that's coming up right now is and, and you said it somewhere else before and I have done a lot of previous work on the psychological warfare and the, of these online social media platforms and what they're degrading our ability for analysis and for human contact and many of these things, which is for another upcoming discussion. But what I think you said it much better than I actually ever have is because what I was watching early on in the war, you'd see somebody's comment on on Twitter and you went into the comments and you were bombarded, whether it was AI or not, uh, even though I don't for a moment imagine that there's very real suffering happening. But you are confronted with these horrific images that on a biological, visceral level, you cannot help but react to. You absolutely react. And and you said it so perfectly, which was that once you have already the emotion, it's almost impossible to bring facts to change someone's mind. And uh, many people said to me early on, you can't change people's opinions with facts. And I think that you really nail it there. If there's anything you want to that just people have this feeling that something's off, just have a peek (laughs) at any historical reality. And you can pick all of this apart really in a moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this this part is really crucial. Uh, The part, the understanding the difference between addressing something factually versus addressing something on an emotional level. I don't know if it's versus. I'm not sure if it's versus. I think it has to be both. But what we do need to understand, and this is something that propagandists understand really well, certainly Soviet propagandists understood it well, is that once, when you're trying to influence someone, you're trying to influence them on an emotional level, because that is the deepest level at which a person can be influenced. And an emotional impact is almost impossible to undo or unwind. Certainly, it's impossible to unwind it with facts. I'll give you an example. This is precisely what Soviet propagandists would do. Here, it just happened, but this is like a classic case. What happened with the Al-Akhli hospital, right? Al-Akhli, I think it was called. I I apologize if I mispronounced it, but that's a hospital that was reported to have been bombed by Israelis. And as soon as it was bombed, Somehow it was immediately reported that 500 people were murdered and it was such a massive shock. It was very early in the war. The New York Times reported this on their front page. They posted a picture that wasn't even a picture of the hospital. It was something else. They posted it for for kind of for illustration purposes. 
as if they didn't understand or didn't think that this is what people will, people will think that this massive crater is what's left of a hospital. Massive shock for everyone. What happens later? Turns out that it wasn't Israel, it was Islamic Jihad. It wasn't the hospital, it was the hospital's parking lot. And it wasn't 500 people, but I, I don't know, like a couple dozen people got injured, right? So not 500 murdered, but a couple dozen got injured. Do you think, how many people do you think read that news? And how many people actually changed their mind? I mean, they might have changed their mind about that one instance, but the emotional impact of the first fake news reporting was far more powerful in creating a feeling that Israel is a monster, Israel is conducting a genocide, you know, so... So this kind of stuff is very hard to undo with facts. And the Soviets understood it very well. They're masters yeah. of it, really. Soviet propaganda is masterful. I mean, out I think, of anyone. I, 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 I imagine that they were behind much of what, what, what was online. They have 100% won the war online. I mean, it is devastating to see it. Well, exactly. If they, if the internet existed in those years, you know, they would have been, but you know, but Russian propaganda is using the internet uh, as much as it can. And there are other state actors that use now the same propaganda, like the Chinese are using the same propaganda uh, that the Soviets produced uh, on their own. Uh, But what I wanted to say also is that on the question of Israel doing a better job in responding to this kind of propaganda, You know, there's always room for improvement, but I also think that it's very hard to defeat what we're facing. Because why is that? Because what we're facing, I go back to what I said earlier, that it is grounded in conspiracy theory. And conspiracy theory is notoriously hard to defeat. And part of the reason it's hard to defeat is that conspiracy theorists take anything you tell them And they incorporate it into their conspiracy theory or they kind of the conspiracy theory adjusts to the new situation. And so it doesn't matter what we do or say, it will be distorted and it will be turned against us. You know, a good example, a good recent example is when there was the raid uh, to save the two hostages just recently in Rafa. It's so interesting how immediately, as soon as it happened, the first thing we hear online is that this was a genocidal Israel attacking defenseless Palestinians in Rafah. You don't even hear anything about the hostages. Or, this is my favorite part, that the IDF launched this attack specifically at the time when Americans were watching the Super Bowl <laughs> to distract, you know, to, so, so they wouldn't be paying attention. It's just, it's so absurd and ridiculous, but this is how conspiracy's mind works. And so here, it's like here was, here was an obvious story, a positive story, right? We are saving our hostages, but even that was turned against us and turned into this conspiracy's perspective. So in a way, I think it doesn't matter. I mean, look, when Israelis go out, when Israel, Israeli government goes out and talks about, for example, uh, and in Israelis, not just the government, but people talk about the progressive LGBTQ agenda in Israel. People call it pinkwashing. They say that you're using it to distract attention from what you're doing to Palestinians. So it doesn't matter what we do. It will always be turned against us. So I think, again, I think the question is, who do we address? I think that I don't know if we can defeat the propagandists and the radicals. There are too many of them. They're too well-financed. They're too convinced. 
I think we really need to be turning our attention to people who are on the fence or people, who, certainly people who are our friends. You know, we need to be talking to them. We need to make sure that they understand the truth, that they're armed with facts. I think that that is, that is really crucial. I think that the past four years have been so extraordinary um, with the onset of, of corona and all that that brought in our whole entire lives. You know, before that, we used to say, oh, gosh, I shouldn't carry my cell phone around. And now it's, it's not even, nobody even pretends like they're not all the time living on their phone. Banking is moving on to phones. Everything is moving on to these cell phones, which carries. And I don't think that we have, you know, nobody checked the label, as it were. We didn't have a discussion as a society. And we are right now, at this moment, living the fallout of what it means to have these social human herd beings of five senses moved online subjected to relentless fear and terror of various natures. And then we just flipped the switch. I felt like this was, I kept calling this initially a world pivot. You know, wow, we flipped this switch of Corona, which changed our lives. And now just like that, we've convinced the world to all but just be willing, being on board with destroying the state of Israel and, and all that it means. And for all its imperfections, it's a work in progress. And I think that that's actually one of the one of the biggest mistakes that modern world made was this idea that the democracies that we so thoroughly enjoyed and so thoroughly did not appreciate in the West were a finished product, right? Done deal. All of that's behind us, you know? Uh, uh, wipe our hands of it, right? No more, no more racism. The whole point is not is being sold to us as a finished product and not a not a goal to attain and to have accountability for and a and to adjust and be dynamic and work with and grow with was the greatest mistake i think that we made in the west as opposed to saying you know cuz you don't have china beating their chest for all their <laughs> all their many mistakes to, that they've made in the world and to their people you know so the whole point of of taking accountability was really what we should have sold people in the west as opposed to you know, ting period at the end of the sentence, we're done here. And I and I will say as well, which was which was what I had wanted to also about the wishing Israel had done more. I do say in our defense, as Jews watching it, I think that we really could not have imagined. No one is naive so much about the anti-Semitism, but that people would be able to believe such obvious lies like what happened in that hospital i still see people quoting that today and it was and that's of course been the mo of of the vast majority of news stations which is let's quick blast the most inflammatory accusatory like there are no holds barred there are no more rules of journalism there is no more oaths of professionalism to the people we go with the most inflammatory story and, and then later we we issue a whoops correction that's been the MO throughout throughout all of this. And I think that we didn't account for in the light of all the psychological warfare, I feel like that we've experienced online and this change of of how easy it would be to believe things that are so obviously not true. Well, yeah. exactly. And I and I just want to say on this, I think the willingness of Western media to jump on the most horrific stories, right? Stories that present Israelis as complete and utter monsters. I think it it demonstrates uh, the again it's the conditioning that's been going on going on for years. You know, I keep kind of 
pounding on this point or emphasizing this point that we it's not new it's not it's not something that's just happening all of a sudden today a lot of people are like well, where did it come from well it's been there you know there are articles i don't know if you know Marty friedman he is a, a writer and a, an israeli journalist he's written some really excellent articles about from his personal experience about how western media reports about israel and he really makes it so clear that they're essentially always prepared to believe the most horrendous lie about Israel. And, and that's why they're jumping. There is no, um, so there is no room for, um, to consider, uh, maybe it's not true. It's just, they just jump on it. Right. And I want to go back to your point about democracies. I mean, I think, I find it so frustrating, again, because as someone who grew up in the USSR, and for us always, the United States certainly was the beacon of hope and the beacon of light. And this is what we discovered when we left. We came in 1990, still behind from behind the Iron Curtain. It was a complete cultural shock. But the thing that really amazed me about America is you really sensed the freedom. You really sensed the liberty to be who you wanted to be. And it was hard and you had to work for it. You realized just what an incredible country of opportunities it is. I remember taking courses in, in school and being exposed to various thinkers and writers and, and filmmakers. And so it was a course in intellectual history. And I remember thinking, my God, why was it all prohibited from me? Why couldn't I see it before? If I had read it or seen it before, I would have been a different person, but I couldn't. It was all prohibited in the USSR. So, so the so the US was this beacon of hope. And so today, when I hear the young gener- the the young people talk about what a horrible country it is, I just think, well, you've never lived in a really horrible country. You don't know what it's like to really not have freedom. Uh, and and I I come to the conclusion that somehow we in the democratic societies have failed to learn how to defend our democracy against these kinds of attacks from within. You know, the attacks that seem to seek to undermine the very fabric of the society. So there's some failure there to communicate the greatness of the society, you know, call it patriotic values. I know it's deeply unfashionable to talk about patriotism, but I think that it's crucial. Uh, It's crucial in the United States. You see how important it is in Israel. And somehow we need to return to this because democracy actually turns out to be very fragile. Uh, they're, they're fragile. If you convince a lot of people to believe that they live in a terrible society, well, then the democracy, the society will actually undermine itself. And, and I think we need to make sure that we win that war kind of for, um, for the minds, I guess, of, of the next generation. I think that's exactly spot on. And that that goes back to what I was saying about the idea of accountability. When I'm accountable, it's mine. I have a part in it. Yeah, that dem- everybody knows democracy isn't perfect. For right now, it's what we got and we need to make use of it. And it shows what you said earlier about the exact antithesis of centralized power, where you have one narrative and it is applied throughout. It is one 
gush. It is one uh, trunk where all branches come from. And that is exactly the, the, the beauty, this sort of whatever it is, this, the salad. They used to call, remember, they used to call America the salad bowl, right? Then it became the melting pot or it was the salad bowl. I don't know which came first. But that's the idea. When I have accountability, like we know that that's actually what the beauty is for, for of, of living in Israel is you feel like it makes a difference your opinion. You have uh, an ability to affect your surroundings and then you're invested in it. Well, that's yeah. right. And I think what I, uh, one thing that I find really that strikes me in Israel now at the time of war, it, you know, it's a small country and there is a very strong story, a very strong understanding. It's not a story. It's a very strong understanding of how important this country is uh, for our people. And there is a sense of historical responsibility toward our people who lived powerless and stateless for thousands of years and how it's very real. It becomes very personal and very real. Everybody takes responsibility for some part of protecting the country. Young people go to fight. I have to say, you know, when I, I run into soldiers in the, in the streets, in, in the, in the, on the trains, and I just feel so deeply moved and like, I don't even understand why these young people need to go and you know, risk their lives to defend me, you know, sitting, sitting in the, in, you know, in, in the city, in my apartment, you know, so um, I think in a way, Americans maybe have lost that. So we failed to communicate that kind of sense of individual personal responsibility for the country that you, you're living in. And I think in the U.S., the U.S. is blessed in that it doesn't really have, it doesn't have enemies on its border, uh, and all of its wars are conducted somewhere far away. And so maybe that's why it's not really so immediate. But we have to somehow make it real for people. You know, I often think, and now it's becoming more and more obvious to me as I look at how old Soviet communist propaganda is popping up on, on, on social media and on the internet. And I think what a mistake it was that we never fully um, discredited the American Cold War um, enemy, you know, the, the USSR and communism. Somehow, I think Americans just kind of went on. I mean, I came to the U.S. just as it was all ending and the USSR was falling apart. And, you know, people just went on with their lives. It was like, okay, well, we won. You know, we obviously we won the Cold War. The USSR doesn't exist anymore. Forget about it. But we really should have taken the time to analyze who it is that we defeated and why it was so dangerous. Because truly, I mean, look, I have a great, I have a great grandfather who was killed in Stalin's repressions, a completely innocent man, you know, for, for all of us to be hearing what we're hearing now on social media, this whole like, well, communism was actually great, you know, socialism was actually great. And that's what we need to strive for. You know, it's, it's shocking. It's actually painful because we have people who lost, we have family members who lost lives or were dispossessed or were, you know, transferred to another part of the world or were starved to death, you know, and to realize how much ignorance there is about that is really devastating. And now with the resurgence of this kind of communist anti-Zionism, you really see the danger of it. And, and again, it's intertwined with anti-American feelings. And this was a massive lost opportunity. You know, Nazi Germany, when we defeated it, it was then fully discredited. The ideology was fully discredited. It didn't happen with Marxism, Leninism. It didn't happen with communism. And it was a big mistake. 
I completely agree with you. And I actually, even I wonder how well, how much we learned about fascism in actuality. I mean, we learned about the, the te- we saw, we saw the piled up bodies. We saw the results of it. We saw, yeah. we saw the carnage. But did we learn about the trickle, trickle until the exponential growth becomes a flood of what it means to slowly take away rudimentary rights of a human yeah. being's expression? And I think that that's spot on that wasn't ever taught. And that's where we're coming here now and filling in the gaps. And just to step back just a moment, you discussed ideas and imagery from the protocols of the elders of Zion. Uh, Honestly, it has been the root of so much. Uh, If you just want to make a comment on that, uh, Isabella. Sure. Well, the protocols of the elders of Zion, of course, were a Russian uh, forgery. They claimed to be that was produced even before the revolution, and they they claimed to be essentially a transcript of a conversation that happened between, you know, the basically the elders of the Jewish people who rule the Jewish people and who rule the world. I mean, if you believe in that, you obviously don't know anything about the Jewish people, right? That they're like some elders who run and rule us. But you know, what's interesting is I want to actually note this is that already back then there were editions of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and we're talking late 19th century, early 20th century, which claimed to be transcripts from the first Zionist Congress in Basel. So the, Zion, the first Zionist Congress, uh, the Zionist movement terrified anti-Semites so much they thought that this was the implementation of all of their fears. Now Jews are really going to come in and like control the world. But but that yeah, so there was already an anti-Zionist kind of um, thread woven into this. But basically, yeah, it's a book that you know that becomes a bestseller. It's translated into every language under the sun. And what's interesting is that. The Nazis pushed it onto different people. They themselves believed it. And actually, there is a British historian who called the protocols a warrant for genocide. Essentially, they, it wow. permitted the Nazis to commit the genocide. I mean, it's it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but but it's in 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 a, in a deep sense, it's true. But then the Soviets also took the protocols and they wove their ideas into their anti-Zionist propaganda. So even though the protocols are considered to come from the far right. The Soviets took them in the 60s and they essentially transformed them into the Marxist-Leninist critique. They knew that they couldn't sell them as they were to the global left because they were racist, right? They were reactionary right wing. But they took the ideas that the protocols had about Jews and they replaced them with the very same ideas, but about Zionists. So if the protocols talked about Jews controlling the world and the press and the media and the finances, financial flows of the world, they said the same about Zionists. So it's the same, the same ideas. And you really see that very clearly in some of the Soviet cartoons, which I often show that in my lectures. Uh, You can see them, actually, it's an article in Tablet that I have from 2019 about Soviet cartoons. And you can really see how a cartoon that calls itself anti-Zionist is ultimately deeply anti-Semitic. It's the same anti-Semitic ideas that had been there from time immemorial. Yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes. I actually have seen some of your lectures with that parade, with that spider, with the Star of David, yeah. that massive spider hanging over children walking the parade. It's, <laughs> yes. And you think, wait, what? It's from Russia? It's not from, it's not from Nazi Germany? Wait, what? <laughs> exactly. Exa- yeah. And this is, this is at a time, again, I often point this out in my lectures, 
this is that parade, the specific picture you're referring to is from like early 1970s. And at that time, the protocols are prohibited in the Soviet Union. And Soviet constitution essentially prohibits uh, any form of hate, racial hate. And yet here they are essentially using the same ideas from the protocols that they are prohibiting in their public, in parades, in public in publications, in lectures, etc. I think what's apparent is that this on its head, this inversion of dialogue, the what Jews face, they are accused of, right? This, obviously, we won't begin to even get into it now, these accusations of genocide, having just experienced a by-the-book attempt minutes before I don't know if you can shed any light, meaning we can see the phenomenon. It would be funny if it wasn't lethal, but what you described, this idea that Jews run the media, um, <laughs> I'd like to talk to the Jew in charge because it's really not doing a very good job. It's um, not working. It's really got to, you know, fire that guy. Everywhere we face it, the turning everything on its head, the 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 perversion of all of this from, from A to Z, do you have any... Anything to shed any light on it? We see the phenomenon, but why? Is it just this deep-rooted fear? They're worried about the 15 million Jews. They're still, you know, we're only just now getting to numbers, ironically, of population of Jews on the planet that we had before the Holocaust. Just now, maybe the world has a, <laughs> they they can only take so much. Um, 15, 15 million Jews, 8, 8 billion people on the planet, 2 billion Muslims. I mean, country the size you can't even get the word israel on on the our place on the map right what's what's what is the deal <laughs> well i mean look i think you are asking a question i don't think anybody has an answer to it's the question of you know what would the, about the eternal nature of anti-semitism uh why is it there i don't think we know somehow it's woven into the fabric of society but this thing with inversion inverting everything you know, it's what's striking is, of course, when the Holocaust is inverted. And that is uh, that is actually a term of art, Holocaust inversion, when Jews are called new Nazis and the Palestinians are called the new Jews. Mm-hmm. And then we're accused of, of perpetrating a genocide against the Palestinians. And again, this is it's not new. You see it in Soviet propaganda already in the 60s, this equation between Israel and Nazi Germany and Jews as the Nazis, it's already there 50 years ago. And it's one of the most popular memes uh, today in the anti-Israel demonstrations. You know, Deborah Lipstadt, who of course is the well-known academic and now the ambassador for, uh, you know, to combat anti-Semitism in the State Department, said that Holocaust inversion is essentially like a form, it, it contains a, a sort of, a, she, I think she uses the word, she uses the word, a worm of Holocaust denial. Because what it does is that, is it uh, diminishes or it, it, it inflates to umpteenth degree what the Jews are doing. And it diminishes by the same degree what the Nazis had done to the Jews. So in essence, it's a form of Holocaust denial. And I think where I'm going with this is that I think that this, this, um, this, these inversions were there, I think, uh, as a 
right-wing reaction to begin with to the Holocaust and an attempt to deny the Holocaust and an attempt to say the Jews did it to themselves and it's their fault and we didn't do it. Our Nazi friends didn't do it. They're not guilty. So I think it's a part of that, you know, to say that Jews did it themselves. Jews did it themselves to their own people in the concentration camps. And where the left picks it up, and you see it again in Soviet propaganda, and that I described in my article about Mahmoud Abbas's dissertation, is where they start to say that the Zionists did it. They start to talk about Zionist Nazi collaboration, and they say that the Zionists are guilty and of the or share the the guilt with the Nazis for the murder of the six million uh, people. It's a really just it takes a really distorted thinking to come to this idea. And again, I explain it in that piece about Abbas's dissertation because he uses it in his dissertation as well. But I think ultimately it is an attempt to. I think for Soviets and for the left. It's an attempt to remove the victim status from the Jews. So the Holocaust supposedly kind of uh, granted Jews this ultimate victimhood status. And so it was hard for the left to attack Israel without being called anti-Semitic. So they tried to diminish the Holocaust by saying that the Zionists contributed to it so that they can then attack the Jews and, without, and not be called anti-Semitic. So in both cases, it's, it's an anti-Semitic impulse to not be constrained by, what, by the tragedy that already happened to the Jews and to continue to attack them. And October 7th was 1,000% a repeat of that. Completely. Within moments where you have the actual perpetrators GoProing real-time atrocities absolutely unheard of, of the most savage degree, and they're denied. It's... Yep. It's extraordinary and it's devastating, not only as a Jew, but as a human being. And it yep. should be to everyone. A hundred percent. Isabella, is there any other any other thing that you want to add to this conversation right now? Well, I, I think I just want to reemphasize the point that what we're seeing today is something that has existed now for many decades. It has arrived in America um, and Israelis experience it in that way through the international propaganda. And I think it's important to understand the history of it, or at least to recognize that there is a history. Because once we do, then we recognize that what we're facing is propaganda. Because I think sometimes people have this inclination to get into discussions with the with the propagandists and try to explain to them how they are wrong. I mean, you can do it. It's just that it's a very, uh, it's a thankless task. You know, you're just going to exhaust yourself. Uh, sometimes I think it's helpful to just point out to propagandists that they're just propagandists, you know, and they're being conspiracy theorists, just to not even engage because you will not convince them of anything. And because they don't follow rules of logical reason, it's really unlikely that you will win by following logic and reason. So what I'm saying, I'm not saying don't, don't, you know, don't give facts. I'm just saying direct your facts at other people. But with conspiracy theorists, just say to them that they're conspiracy theorists or make fun of them, laugh at them, you know, find ways to, uh, to circumvent the kind of uh, the provocation that they're trying to, to create. 
Uh, and that I think that that comes when you have that understanding that we it's an unequal fight. We're fighting a a body of uh, kind of of ideas and language that was created. It wasn't created by activists sitting in a garage in San Francisco on campus in Berkeley, California, who were these idealists who wanted to save the Palestinian people. No, this language was created by a cynical power, totalitarian power regime that wanted to use anti-Semitism for its, and and the feelings of anti-Semitism in different people uh, in order to fulfill its its, uh, foreign policy interests. It's important to understand it just for, for our own sanity. 100%. And we all know that there is no reason that the Palestinians living in Gaza or anywhere else should should have been suffering for as long as they had, if not for the purpose that they serve. And that is 1000% obvious. And I think that what you offer with actually, again, offering the source, meaning we have taken everyone's word for it. We have taken everyone's interpretation. And this is permission to explore and to welcome back the word Zionism. I mean, you know, I made some comment the other day, Bob Marley, <laughs> the icon, no, but seriously, the icon of peace sings about Zion day and night, right? Yes, exactly. So it is, it is not inherently a dirty word and it's ours and we have permission to um, take it back. A hundred percent. And we have to, that is one thing we have to do. You know, if somebody somehow feels embarrassed from by this word or embarrassed to call themselves Zionist, I think that after October 7th, especially, we have to not just take it back, but take it back with pride and wear it with pride and call ourselves Zionists. Uh, it's, it's still, it doesn't matter how much they try to, uh, to demonize it. It's still, its meaning is the same. And I think October 7th has shown it to us more than anything that we need our state and we need our sovereignty and we need to be able to defend ourselves. And so, yeah, Zionism all the way. Yeah, and I think that the same way that you you couldn't convert in different attacks on Jews in the past, you couldn't convert out of being a Jew. You couldn't, you know, there was no way out. And it's the same thing with this sort of pretend pretense that Zionism is anything less than 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 Jew hate. You know, you can't not be a Zionist living in New Jersey. You know, you're still under attack for all. And, and Isabella, what while people are entrenched on pro anti right left sides, which really do no one any good, there is a vast majority of people in the middle who are simply uninformed, and it's those people who we speak to because what we're imploring people is not come 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 to my side it's 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 for god's sake take accountability back for your own understanding for the blessed analytical process for for the the most human right of choice <laughs> um Absolutely. to not just be flipped flopped from side to side because this is as i said earlier the stakes could never be higher we're talking about human life and what love or hate the jews is not for me to say, but history has always, always shown that when we have this manner of unhinged vitriol against Jews, it means society's decay is at a breaking point. It is at a breaking point, and I am genuinely concerned for my people, for my country, but for the world, because we are on this 
beautiful green blue rock all together and we're going to have to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely 100% uh the proverbial canary in the in the coal yeah. mine. This is yeah. this is precisely it. You know, it yeah. shows the kind of cleavages and fissures that are just frightening and this is especially this is uh to return to the question of how we need to be defending our democracy. We need to get get uh, really serious about it, defending the West, defending the democratic West, uh, liberal democracies. It's, it's, it's crucial. It is crucial. This is not about any one state. This is not about any one people. This is about the structure of Western civilization, the yes. structure of law and order, which forever, however much they may have been broken or breached, are sound. This is about there being basic freedoms honored. This is about the ability to speak is the root of all of them, to speak freely. And yes. that is what we are in defense of. And do not get confused by anyone narrowing that down. Western civilization is a beautiful thing and it is a work in progress and it requires every single one of us. A hundred percent. Isabella, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I hope you'll come on again. And I wish you um, a microphone that we should all hear <laughs> loud, and, <laughs> loud and clear. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it and uh, to be continued. Awesome. Thanks, Isabella. Thank you.